Well, as the ushers are collecting the offering, open up your Bibles. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. And open up to the book of John. We're pretty much going to stay planted in the book of John all morning. And so you uh, you can open up there. So um, John is where we're going to be, and you know, for the, for the last couple of weeks, what we've done is we've looked at the incarnation of Christ, meaning God becoming man, that's, that's called the incarnation, and we've looked at it from Philippians chapter 2, okay? And, uh, and I, I really believe that you cannot understand Christmas, you cannot adequately celebrate Christmas Unless you have a, a, some understanding of the Incarnation, what, what exactly Jesus did when he became man, how he left his position, what position that he had, how he's, he is fully God and he became fully man. We have to understand those things in order to fully, one, to, in order to fully understand the gospel, but also, two, to celebrate Christmas. Because when we celebrate Christmas, we're not just celebrating the fact that a child was born. We're not even just celebrating the fact that a king was born. We're celebrating the fact that God became man. It's something that has never happened before and will never happen again. And God became man, not just to to forever be a man, but to save humanity, to save the world, to defeat sin. We have to understand those things in in order to... understand the gospel but you have to under it's only when you understand those things that you really celebrate christmas the incarnation of christ is an incredible demonstration of humility on on the part of of jesus and christmas is a time where we pause to remember that now i understand that christmas is also a time for to, to travel for maybe thousands of miles to visit family and to, to have big feasts and to, you know, make hot cocoa and go look at Christmas lights and sing songs and open gifts and, and all of these other things that go along with the Christmas season, which are good, by the way. It's okay to, to celebrate. It's okay to rejoice. It's okay to spend time with family. It's okay to, uh, to pass traditions down. You know, grandma is making cookies with their granddaughters and, and things like that. Those, those are all good and wonderful things. But if we're doing those things and neglecting the incarnation of Christ, then something's wrong. It's okay to, to celebrate in honor of Christ's incarnation. But what doesn't make sense for the Christian is to, to do all of the, the traditional Christmas festivities and then forget about Christ. I've always kind of questioned the statement where, where people are, are constantly wanting to keep Christ in Christmas. And I, I get the sentiment behind it, but it doesn't make sense because if you don't have Christ, there is no Christmas. If you're, if you're celebrating, but you're not celebrating the fact that Christ became a man, then you're not celebrating Christmas at all. You're just celebrating an American tradition, I suppose. Nonetheless, it's a crazy time of year. But it's crazy, really, because of the celebrations. And we should be celebrating. We should consciously make the decision to be celebrating the fact that God became man. Now, 
This verse that we're going to read, probably if you've spent any time in the church at all or, or spent any time in Awana, you know the verse that I'm about to read. And so you, you can say it with me if you've memorized it. It doesn't matter what version you've memorized it from. But we're going to look, we're going to be in John chapter 3, verse 16 this morning. So I'll read it. Uh, you can say it. Uh, but here we go. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Absolutely. Maybe you memorize it in the King James Version. Maybe you memorize it in the NIV. It doesn't matter what version. But this verse is one of the most famous in all of Scripture because it summarizes the gospel so well. But I would argue it also is a Christmas passage. Okay? So, um, one of the things that we do at Christmas is we give gifts. Right? That, that's... Uh, it, that's what kids love. Let's be honest. That's what kids look forward to about Christmas, waking up and tearing into their gifts and, and doing all the things that kids do, right? But the reason, you know, that we, we share gifts or exchange gifts is really they're an expression of love, right? Um, that, that's what we try to make our gifts at Christmas particularly. Right? We try to say, you know what? I was thinking of you. I wasn't thinking of myself. I was thinking of you, and I saw this thing at the store, and, and I, I thought that you would enjoy it. I, I thought that you would like it, and so I purchased it for you, wrapped it for you, and I'm giving it to you as a gift. That's what gifts are, right? I'm giving this thing to you because I know you, and I, I think that you would enjoy it. It doesn't matter what it is, right? Maybe, maybe it's a, a new hunting rifle. Maybe it's a new iPad. Maybe, maybe it's just a, a book that you enjoy, right? Maybe it doesn't have to be anything big or expensive, but when we give a gift, we're saying, I was thinking of you, and I wanted to give this to you because I care about you. It's a physical expression of our love that we have, right? No, we, we don't have to give gifts. Gifts aren't an essential part of Christmas. They aren't even an essential part of, of life, but at best, our gift-giving is a display of love, at best, right? Now, don't get me wrong, there is kind of a, a darker side to gift-giving. For some, uh, some people are, are focused on the materialism. Some people, uh, some people go into some crazy debt over gifts. Some people uh, are caught into the idea that the advertisers will, uh, are, are teaching today, where uh, if, if you get on TV or, or the Internet and you see all these ads, what the advertisers are trying to tell you is that you are lacking, you're lacking and your life is not adequate if you don't have, you know, fill in the blank. If you don't have the new iPad or iPhone, then you're lacking. If you don't have that Mercedes sitting in your driveway with a red bow on it, then you're lacking. Then, then Christmas wasn't fulfilled for you because your spouse didn't buy you a new Mercedes. I saw a commercial the other day when I was watching the news and it shows uh, everyone, I, I must have been Christmas night, sleeping with their favorite gift and it shows this guy sleeping in the bed of his Chevy pickup truck out in the driveway, right? And so uh, the dog has a bone and the kid has some sort of trinket and then it shows the dad in a sleeping bag in the bed of his truck, uh, which, which I thought was a, it was a it was a clever ad. But the point is you're lacking if you don't have this stuff. That's what the advertisers are trying to tell you. We get caught up in this materialism, right? We, it, it, Gift-giving can also kind of play into our sense of entitlement. You owe this to me. You, you should give me something great. Sometimes we give gifts out of obligation. I, I want to point you in Scripture where we find a perfect Christmas gift. We see that in John chapter 3, verse 16. 
the perfect gift. And the first thing we notice as we read John 3.16, or as you think of it in your mind, the first thing you notice is that this gift is a gift of love. It was given because God loves. God so loved the world that he gave. Another way you could say this is because God loved the world so much, he gave. Because he loved. For God so loved the world, he gave. That's what God's love for you does. It is a giving love, a generous love, a gracious love, and it's free and it's unconstrained. The love of God that John is talking about here doesn't talk about our merits or our goodness. In other words, you don't earn God's love. God doesn't love you because you're good. God doesn't love you because you're moral. God doesn't love you because you have self-discipline or you try really hard. God loves you because God is God and he's loving. That's why God loves you, because he is God. God loves you because of who he is, not because of who you are. God doesn't make a list. He doesn't check it twice to find out who's naughty or nice before he gives his Christmas gift, right? That, that's, it, l- let me pause here very carefully looking at how many children are in the room. Um, This really is one of the main problems I have with the way most Americans celebrate gift-giving at Christmas coming from a particular source. I'm not going to say the name because I don't want to ruin Christmas for anyone. But this idea of a naughty and nice list really enforces a morality-based salvation. Okay, so telling uh, a young person... uh, that, that someone else will come and show grace through gifts, but only if the child is good, totally goes against the doctrine of grace. Not to mention the fact is, as, as we sit here and, and we, we promise our child that this is true and this magic happens and true, and then all of a sudden they grow up and realize that it's not true. Um, it can, can do some damage to a child's faith, from my opinion. Now, God doesn't give because we've been good. God gives because he loves, and he loves because of who he is, not who you are, remember? In a nutshell, my little soapbox here, God is better than Santa. He absolutely is, every single time. And when we celebrate Christmas, we should be focused on the gift that God gave us. Celebrate it fine with with other gifts, and celebrate it how, how you want with your traditions, but celebrate Christ. Worship Christ. God's gift is free, and it's undeserved, and it's unsolicited, and and you didn't even pursue it, but he gave it anyway. But there is a way that we can kind of gauge God's love. I I really don't believe that we'll ever fully grasp or understand how, how big and how incredible God's love is. But I think we can kind of get a grasp on it. Not completely, but we can get a maybe a snapshot, okay? Um, in fact, when we find that here in John 3.16, first he says, you, you can get a grasp of it by uh, what he gave and then who he gave it to. Okay, uh, so that's how you can kind of grasp it. So let's look at what God gives. For God so loved the world that he gave, what did he give? His only son. Okay, uh, so this is, this is giving us a picture of God's love. God loves us so much because God loved the world so much, he gave his son. Okay? 
the gift itself, in this case, helps us uh, kind of see the dimension of God's love for us. God so loved the world that he gave his son. He gave his only son. So much is crammed in to, to this verse. He gave his son. Look at, look at that. Look at he gave. God is not in your debt. God did not owe you anything. It's not as though your, your morality is, is so wonderful that, that God had to save you, that God had to send his son. No. God loves you, so he gave his son. He gave his son to participate in humanity. To, and we, we've been studying this over the last couple of weeks, looking at Philippians 2. He gave his son, and what did his son do? His son left his position in heaven. His son uh, came in uh, and engaged with sinful humanity. He became a servant, not just a servant of God, but a, a poor servant of a man. He gave his life up to the point of death, even death on a cross. His son was laid in a manger. He was fragile and, and, and weak and dependent on others as he's laying in that manger. He was vulnerable, just like any baby. God gave his son to be hungry and thirsty, angry and joyful, to grief and loss. God gave his son to bear our sin so that he who knew no sin would be made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God gave his son to the cross so that there he would, he would bear our shame, bear our sin, but that he might atone for the sins that I've committed, the sins that you've committed. Nothing can serve as a full you know, perfect explanation of the love of God. But if you've ever wondered about God's love, if, you, if you've ever kind of been confused by God's love, you can look at Christ. You can look at the life that he lived and what he left in order to live it. And that gives you a glimpse, a glimpse of it. God so loved. How much did he love? He, he loved us. He loved the world so much that he gave his son. He gave him to the manger, gave him to the rejection of the people, gave him to the injustice Pilate and the Romans, he gave him to the nails driven into his hands. He gave him to the grave. John chapter, or excuse me, 1 John 4.10 says this, In this, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He's given us his son, his only son. The son who, who he loves. The son who he's been unified with for all of eternity. So he can grasp a little bit of, of God's love by seeing what he gave, but then also you can grasp what, or, or excuse me, you can grasp how much he loves us by looking at who he gave to. What's, what's John 3.16 say? For God so loved who? The world. God so loved the world. The world. God so loved the world. Our, our, 
that, that really should take our breath away. When you see that God so loved the world, that should cause you pause. It should make your heart skip, make you scratch your head, whatever the, the phrase is. When you see that, it should blow you away. Here, here's the thing. In John's uh, gospel and also in his letters, uh, when, John, when the apostle John uses the term the world, it's used in a very specific way. Okay, uh, so uh, for us, for the most part, when we read the world, what we're thinking is numerically, the, all of humanity, every individual. So uh, we read the world and we say, okay, so uh, in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, how we would translate that is we would say, well, God so loved every individual, every person that he gave his son. Well, that is true. God does love every person. That's not exactly what John is talking about here. Because when John says the world, he means something very specific. So, what he means when John says the world is he means rebellious humanity. That's what he's talking about, okay? So uh, we tend to read John 3.16 kind of distributively. God loved every individual in the whole world. Um, so when we read 3.16, it's kind of expansive and large for everyone everywhere. But John, John when John writes, it's not a numerical concept. It's a, it's a moral concept or an ethical concept. It's a way to talk about human beings rejecting God. When he talks about the world, he's talking about humanity rejecting him. He's talking about those who say, God, I, I, I don't want you as my God. I don't want you as my Lord. I want to be Lord of my own life. I want to be ruler. I want to be God. And this points right back to the fall, right? That's exactly what Adam and Eve did when they fell. So when John says the world, he's talking about rebellious humanity. The ones that are shaking their fists at God. So now reread John 3.16. Understand what he's saying when he says the world. For God so loved the world. In other words, for God so loved the people who hate him. God, for, God so loved the war, for God so loved the ones who rebelled against him. For God so loved the ones who want to be their own God. He loved them so much that he gave his son. It's incredible. It's incredible because when you think, when you think of it from a numerical standpoint, you say, well, God loved humanity so much. Well, he, in, in general, he loved us all that there were some that he knew would be saved. But then when you look at it like this, he's saying God so loved the rebellious ones. God so loved the sinners. God so loved the ones who don't love him back that he gave his son. And we see this in example, in example after example in uh, the Gospel of John, but you also see it in John's letters. John 1.9 says this. It says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Okay? John 3.19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. John 7.7. 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. John 14.27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you? Uh, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. That's the world in John's letters. That's the way the Apostle John wrote. When he says the world, he doesn't mean numerically every individual. He means ethically those who rebel against God. 
It's a way to talk about human beings who are lost in sin, shaking their fists at God, seeking to be Lord or King over their own life. And that's who God loves. That that's who God loves. God so loved the world. It's incredible. It's not that God loved the ones that, it's, that he decided he was going to save. It's that God loved the world. In other words, God knows who you are. God knows the sins in your heart. He knows the wickedness that you have indulged in. And he sent his son anyway. He sent his son. God loved the world that he sent his son. It's incredible. This is the, the love of God that, that we sing about. We rejoice in and celebrate at Christmas. The gift of Christ to a world of rebels like, like me and you. God knows everything about me. God knows the wickedness in my heart. And he still saved me. He saved me before I ever wanted him. You've not pulled the wool over God's eyes. You can't dupe God into loving you or, or, or persuade him by some performance of yours. It also means that you can't convince someone that you care about to just make a quick decision and they'll be saved. God knows you. He knows the sin that you've involved yourself in. He loves you. And he sent his son to die for you. And the beauty of Christmas is that the love of God sees you as you really are. He loves you anyway. What this tells us is that there is nothing that we can do or have ever done that would exclude us from his grace or his forgiveness. There is nothing, there's no sin or wickedness in our life that, that would make God say, you know what, he's too evil, she's too awful, she's too far gone, she can't be saved. If God wants to save you, you will be saved. The love of God sees you as you are, despite your best attempts to sanitize your own heart. He sees the truth. He sees the world and its darkness and ugliness and sin. And he, he loves the world and gives the world Jesus. Not because you're wonderful. Not because you're lovely, not because you're great or obedient, but in all honesty, it's because you're not lovely. Because we're not. We're sinners. We stand apart, apart from Christ, we stand under wrath. We're, we're facing the curse of God. Yet he still loves us and sent his son to die for the sins that we've committed. There's good news at Christmas. There, there really is. It, it's an incredible gift that God has given to us, a gift that we do not deserve. It's a costly gift. He gave his son up to the cross and gave him up for the world, for, for rebels, for, for those who have rejected him. It's the perfect picture of love. Look again at the, at the passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
You could change this a little bit or, or translate it a little better probably and say uh, that instead of whoever believes that those who believe, some translations will say that, that those who believe or the believing ones will have eternal life. That's the impact of the incarnation. That's what the incarnation does. That, that's why when Christ was born, it, it totally changed everything. All of creation was radically changed on that night. That's why the angels showed up and they, they praised God before the shepherds. That's why the magi came from, from far and were given a sign. That's why, that's why all of this happened. Because God became man. God became man. And God's radical love was put on display in Jesus Christ. And that baby in a manger. That baby in a manger isn't just a baby. That baby is not just a king. That baby is the holy God of the universe. That baby is the one who spoke everything into existence. He's the one who the scriptures talk, as the scriptures are talking about him, say, for whom and by whom all things were made. He's the holy Son of God. And at Christmas, we're to worship him. I've, I've said over the last couple of weeks that, that Christmas is a season of humility, as Christ demonstrated a radical humility. And at Christmas, what we should do is we should worship Christ. And if our celebrations and our traditions are getting in the way of us worshiping Christ, then something's wrong. Something's wrong with our celebrations, with our traditions. If those are getting in the way of our worship of Christ, then they're idols, aren't they? God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's why angels praise God. Again, that's why the Magi showed up. That's why God became man, so that all who believe will have eternal life. According to the scriptures, believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the message of the Bible. That's the good news for Christmas. The greatest gift ever given was offered for free unconditionally to all who believe. And so my question then, my charge to you, is do you believe that? I get that you celebrate Christmas. I get that it's a fun, enjoyable time. But do you really believe that God became man to die in your place? Do you truly believe that you are a sinner who is in desperate need of a Savior? Do you believe that you need to repent of those sins, confess those sins, do you believe that someone needs to stand for you in your place and that your only hope, your only hope for salvation is Jesus Christ? Because your morality and your behavior, your, your good works is viewed as filthy rags before a holy God. My charge to you if, you, if you have not put your faith in Christ, if you don't know him, if, you, if you've if you don't know what it means to be a sinner or to repent, I'd love to talk to you after this service. But my challenge to you is evaluate your heart. Evaluate. Do you really believe that Christ came to die for you? Do you? Have you confessed Christ as Lord? Have you put your trust in Him as your as your Savior, your only Savior? Do you realize you do need a Savior? And do you believe that God sent the perfect Savior in Jesus Christ? This Christmas, I challenge you to worship Christ. 
Don't just remember him, worship him. Don't just think about him, worship him. Cling to him. Turn from yourself and turn to him. And remember that the radical love of God displayed at the manger. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for for today. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. God, we we thank you for this time of year where we have the opportunity to worship you and and to do it in a very public way without a lot of opposition. God, we thank you that we can uh, can celebrate the birth of Christ with with those who, who don't really know what the incarnation is or or don't really understand the the significance of Christ's birth. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to share the story of Christmas and what it means. I pray that you would give us the boldness to declare the impact of Christ becoming man to those who don't understand. God, I pray that, that everyone in this room would worship Christ this Christmas and that we would not be distracted by the chaos of this holiday season. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. And we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.